Welcome to the Summit for Wellness podcast, where we help you climb to the peak of your health. And now, here is your host, Brian Carroll. We all have spices in our kitchens that we use to boost the flavor of our food. While we use it more for flavor, traditional cultures would use these spices to stimulate different organs in the body to work more efficiently. For example, bitter and sour flavors are used to stimulate digestive juices to help with the breakdown of food, which is why a lot of different cultures start their meals with some sort of fermented appetizer. So if we can learn how these flavors can support the body, then we can do a better job of supporting ourselves with the foods and herbs we eat daily. What's up, everyone? I'm Brian Carroll, and I'm here to share nutrition and fitness tips to make wellness less complicated. And today we have Chris Vaughn joining us to talk all about herbal flavors and how they can support the body. Before we dive into this episode, this episode is brought to you by our friends at Athletic Greens. Their greens blend is packed with 75 whole food ingredients that are extremely rich in nutrients. The blend is also packed full of flavorful herbs, which supports the body in different ways, as we will learn in this episode. To get your packet and start improving your health today, go to summitforwellness.com greens. Now let's dive right into my conversation with Chris Vaughn. Chris Vaughn is a certified clinical herbalist and owner and program director of Herbal Wisdom Institute in Prescott Valley, Arizona. Chris introduces traditional herbalism to her community through plant walks and classes, and she teaches an herbalist certification course. Along with teaching, Chris is a director of practitioner experience for Wise Women Herbals, and she is a host of her own podcast titled Herbal Wisdom. Thank you so much for coming on to the show, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Of course. I always love talking with herbalists because, you know, that's kind of the medicine from, you know, the start of time. So many herbalists know just so many different properties of plants and how they can be used for different things, different illnesses. And um, it's kind of a lost art form in a way because we're moving so far away from it. So can you talk a little bit about your background and what got you interested in herbalism? Sure. Uh, Herbalism was not something I grew up around. I actually didn't grow up around any kind of natural medicine. You know, my mom raised me the, the way a lot of people are. You get a sniffle, you go to the pediatrician, right? And so that's how I raised my kids. And it wasn't until my youngest daughter was, she was about seven, and she developed stomach ache, which is normal. You know, kids get tummy aches, that's fine. But after a few days of her having intense stomach pain, uh, I start, you know, your mom tuition kicks in and you go, okay, something isn't right. So I started taking her to the doctor, which led to basically nine months of invasive tests, blood tests, upper GI, endoscopies. I mean, you name it, this kid had it. And all the only answers the doctors could come up with were, well, she has inflammation in her digestive tract. We don't know why. Here's an antacid. And you know, she wasn't eating. She wasn't sleeping. She was coming home from school every day, crying. And I just thought, there's got to be something 
else? There's got to be an answer. And a friend of mine said, you know, could I recommend a few things to you? And they were herbs. And I thought, sure, whatever. You know, I didn't think it was going to do anything because, you know, this girl was into all that weird natural stuff. And how could that work? Right. And so I decided to go ahead and, and buy these things and, and give them to my daughter. And in three days, she was pain free and she was eating again and she was happy and she was going to school. And I had to stop and, and go, OK, wait a minute. What am I missing? There's a piece here that that I need to know about. And so I began to do research on the items that I had given her. And. I got more and more fascinated by these herbs the more that I dug into them. And so it made me decide to go to school to study Western herbalism. And then I became an herbalist. And 10 years later, here I am. Yeah, the world of herbs definitely just drops you down the rabbit hole because you learn about one and then the next and then the next and it just you just keep going. So um, do you remember which herbs you use for your daughter? I do. So um, the, the first one was aloe vera. So I used aloe juice um, to help with moving things through her digestive tract and to reduce the inflammation. The other was marshmallow root. And I did that in capsules and still probably one of my most favorite digestive herbs. I recommend marshmallow root for most people that have some digestive inflammation. Uh, but then we also were giving her some probiotics and some fish oil. So when I look at it now, I go, oh, that's such a simple protocol, right? Like, but back then, when I knew nothing about it, I thought this was really complicated. But now I go, oh, this is really simple. And this is, you know, we don't have to do these really complicated and powerful medicines. We can do these very simple herbs that many of us have really easy access to. And those herbs that you just labeled off, is there a ton of side effects? Like, is it good for, you know, your digestive tract, but the side effects are a list of a million things like we see with there's normal medication? There's a list of a million things. I mean, there's a couple of things you want to be aware of whenever you're using any kind of a plant. So like, for instance, marshmallow root is, uh, we call it a demulcent. And so what it does is it coats and soothes irritated mucous membrane tissue. And so that's not just in the digestive tract, it's anywhere we have irritated mucous membranes. Now, because it puts this, okay, so have you ever eaten okra? And yes, you know how okra gets really slimy, right? Mm -hmm. So that's mucilage and marshmallow root has that same kind of property. It has that slimy property to it. And so that's the property that goes in and coats that mucous membrane tissue. Now, the one thing to, to pay attention to is if you're going to use marshmallow root and you are taking some type of a pharmaceutical medication that you need to have, you don't want to take them at the same time because when, when that marshmallow root coats that mucous membrane of the stomach, it'll slow down how you absorb your medication. So it's a really simple remedy. It's natural, but there are still things we need to be aware of. And so that's why I'm really um, passionate about teaching people how to be herbalists because um, there are things we need to pay attention to so that we can use herbs safely and get the best benefit out of them. 
So can you talk a little bit about the history of herbalism? How far back does it go? And do you know or do we know how it even started that people started discovering that this plant is good for this? Well, we, you know, we have proof of herbal medicine predating written history um, I, as far back as about 80,000 years ago. I, th you know, I think it's traditional Chinese medicine system is, we say it's about 6,000 years old, but people have been using plants as food and medicine from the beginning of time because that's what there was. And so there is a lot of discussion on, well, how did people know how to use plants um, when they didn't have books, right? And we, what we find is there were people in very different regions of the world that had the same plants, and we find that they were using them in the same way, but how did they know that? Because they couldn't communicate across the continents at that time. And so there's a few theories. You know, one theory is that, um, you know, maybe it was divine intervention. God told them how to use those plants. Uh, another theory is that they were really good observers and they would sit and watch how nature interacted with those plants. How did the animals use those plants if they were sick? And then there was some trial and error, maybe, is the theory that, you know, they would try something and oops, he died. Don't use that one again. <laughs> <laughs> so there probably really is a mixture of all three of those theories. And we, you know, we look back at people at that, at those times, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago, that they didn't have the technology that we have, but they had this really deep connection to the earth. And they had this really great ability to listen to the earth and the plants and to speak to the earth and the plants and have this relationship that we just really don't have in our modern world. And so today we rely a lot on literature, uh, where back then they relied a lot on observation and intuition. Um, and then there, you know, there's something called the doctrine of signatures. And, and so that tells us that um, there are visual clues in everything. So for instance, if a plant was yellow, like dandelion, that it was good for the urinary tract. If a plant was red, um, like a hawthorn berry, it was good for the heart. Um, so, you know, there were different clues like that that people would use in their observation. Um, but intuition really play, did play a big part of it. So you had mentioned that uh, if you look at these different cultures around the world, they would have different plants, but they would figure out how to use uh, these different plants for the same type of symptoms. So that brings up the question, um, we have access to plants from all over the world now. Is it better to take a plant from way over here to use it where you're located, or is it better to find plants that are local to your environment and use those instead? Well, I am a big fan of local plants, just like when, like how we promote eating local produce. Um, we have a fresher product when we are getting something local. Um, but more than that, we have this unique relationship with our medicine when we use plants that are local in our area. Uh, we have a stronger affinity for those particular plants. They tend to work better for us. Um, 
And we have that opportunity to see them in their natural environment and really develop that friendship with those plants uh, that we don't, you know, we don't get friendship with our pharmaceutical medications, right? There's no relationship there. Um, but we have that unique ability with herbs. Now, does that mean that you can only use local? No, we absolutely can use plants from other areas and still get some great benefit. But I think whenever you have the opportunity to use something that is local, you're going to experience healing on a much deeper level. Now, with that being said, um, I don't necessarily recommend people just go out and start harvesting their own plants until they've really learned how to identify plants um, and follow really good ethical harvesting practices. And so that also comes from a bit of education. Yeah, the ethical part is pretty important because some people do go out and just wipe out an entire area of one species and that's not good for the environment. So correct. Uh, thank you for bringing that part up. Now, uh, one of the things that uh, you really look at as an herbalist is the different flavors of herbs and what that can do for your body. Um, and so uh, we have different flavors depending on the type of herbalism that you follow. TCM, I think, has five different flavors. Same with Western. And I believe Ayurvedic has six. Um, so can you talk about the different flavors Um how they're similar across the different types of herbalism and uh, what they can do for the body or tell you about the body. Absolutely. So this is, um, when I first started studying herbalism, this was a concept that at that time was a little bit foreign to me. And so I focused a lot in the beginning on, on learning the actions of an herb and what conditions it was helpful for, which really is a very allopathic conventional medicine way of looking at herbs um, and not necessarily a deep herbalist view. Um, and it gets really overwhelming, to be honest, um, when you're just trying to memorize facts about a plant. And so over time, I began to really look at the idea of herbal flavors and it really made things much more simple in how I begin to choose plants and use them with myself, my family, or my clients. Um, there, so we look at five flavors, like you mentioned, Ayurveda has six. And so um, in our five flavors theory, it, it still encompasses that sixth flavor, but it's categorized into one of these five. And when we're talking about herbal flavors, it's not so much the flavor on the tongue, because I might tell you something is sweet and you're going to taste it and go, oh, wow, that is not sweet at all. But the flavor really talks more about the action that it has within the body and in the tissues. And so when we talk about five flavors, we have sweet, sour, bitter, salty, and pungent. And so sweet flavors we'll talk about first. These are ones that calm our nerves and build and tone tissue. So let's think about sweet foods first before we talk about sweet herbs. So think about when you have a really stressful day and you go, oh my gosh, you know what? I just really need some ice cream at the end of the day. 
and you sit down and you, you take that first bite of ice cream, or maybe it's chocolate cake. Women usually love the chocolate cake, right? And so you take that first bite and there's this visible release of tension that maybe we sigh, we go, oh, that's so good, right? And there's this immediate relaxation that happens in the body in response to that flavor of sweet. And so we get that from things like fruit, of course, natural sugars in fruit, but we also get that in dairy and in some of our grains. Um, and so we get that comforting feeling when we eat things like what well, we say, like carbohydrates, right? Um, whether that's breads or cookies or pasta, we get this very comforting feeling. And that's because that sweet flavor within those foods helps to calm our nerves, reduce tension, but also build up and tone tissue. So when we're looking at herbs that do that, um, the one I mentioned earlier, marshmallow, one of my favorites, um, is a sweet flavored herb. We also have things like slippery elm, which does a lot of the same things as marshmallow. Um, other people may have heard of elderberry, which is a really great cold and flu type of an herb, very antimicrobial. Um, and then we have maybe something like um, ashwagandha, which is an adaptogen herb, which helps our body to respond to and recover from stressors. Um, and in traditional Chinese medicine, they refer to ashwagandha as, um, well, there's two ways they refer to it. One I've heard is the power of a thousand horses which sounds like very strong male virility, right? And so this was an herb that was really used for that strength and grounding energy that we give to men. But I use this for women as well when we really need to, to be grounded and um, have strength in our spirit. Um, another way that that one was referred to is the smell of a thousand horses because some people think it smells like horse urine. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but those are herbs in that sweet category. And so we have a lot of herbs that work on the nervous system in some capacity. And most of those will have as their main flavor of sweet. Now you can have something that has more than one flavor, but its dominant flavor is the one that we would talk about. So those are sweet herbs. Um, then we have bitter herbs. This is a category a lot of people are hearing about right now. Digestion issues are on the rise, have been for a while. And bitter flavors stimulate production of our digestive juices. So they get the stomach and the pancreas and the intestines ready to digest food and move things through the digestive tract at an appropriate rate. And so when we're talking about foods that are bitter, we think of really dark leafy greens. And so a lot of people go, oh, I don't like those dark greens, it's so bitter, but that's what we need. Uh, we are a society that is geared towards everything being sweetened. And so our palate isn't, isn't um, acclimated to bitter anymore, but we can do that. Um, and, I, and I love there's a rise again in bitter cocktails. <laughs> So people are drinking bitter cocktails now before a meal, which is how they were designed. So you eat bitter foods or drink bitter beverages about 10 to 15 minutes before you eat. And that helps us to digest our food better. And along with boosting digestion, we, we aid in, in detoxifying the body 
and lightening our tissues. And so some herbs that do that would be dandelion, um, specifically dandelion root. Um, maybe, maybe it's globe artichoke, artichoke being like the vegetable that we eat artichoke, um, milk thistle. Um, there's also Oregon grape root. So those are some of my favorite bitters. Um, and then going along with bitter, we have a category of sour and sour really cleanses tissue um, and boosts mineral absorption. And the sour flavor stimulates the release of bile from the gallbladder so that we break fat down better. So when you have bitter, that is stimulating how the liver produces bile and makes sure that that bile is healthy bile. And then sour helps the gallbladder release that bile so we break down the fats in our food and get better absorption of minerals in our digestive tract. So bitter and sour really go hand in hand. Most herbs that are bitter are also going to be sour and vice versa. Um, then we have salty. That's the fourth flavor. And salty helps to boost digestion as well, um, improves our mineral and vitamin absorption, um, improves flavor. So most of us will add salt to food to improve flavor. Now, when we talk about salty herbs, we have two different kinds of salt. We can have salt that is true salt, and we usually would get that from our sea vegetables. And then we have salt that comes from minerals. So our herbs that are really high in vitamin and mineral content, we're going to say has a salty flavor. And so this might be something like dandelion leaf um, or yellow dock. Um, but if you like those seaweeds like kelp, bladderwrack, you'll get salty in those. And then the fifth flavor is pungent or spicy. And so these are herbs that are very antimicrobial. And so we think of things like onions and garlic and hot chili peppers, um, ginger, those, those things that warm us up and, and help to really fight um, bacteria, specifically in the digestive tract. Um, and these are, this is the category of herbs you would go to if, let's say, you start to get a cold or a flu. You want some pungent herbs to, to fight virus and bacteria, but you might also choose pungent herbs if you're wanting to stimulate circulation. And so some herbs we would look at again would be like garlic and ginger and, um, and then some other things in the antimicrobial categories like OSHA. And so that's, that's just a really brief rundown of the five flavors, sweet, sour, bitter, salty, and pungent. And when I started to look at things in this way, I thought, oh, well, that's a whole lot easier to apply than to memorize 15 herbal actions and 20 conditions <laughs> that a particular herb is useful for. Because now we, I just kind of look at patterns in the body. And so if I'm talking with somebody and they're having digestive issues, I don't necessarily care what they're diagnosed with. I don't need that label of their health condition to decide what I want to give them. I look at what's the imbalance happening in the digestive tract and what flavors would suit what they're dealing with to help bring them back to balance. Got it. So going back to the bitters and uh, sours and how that can help with digestion, I've seen some um, 
herbal bitter products out there that have just a couple herbs in it. And then I've seen some that seem to have every single bitter and sour herb that you could ever imagine in it. So is there a point where too many herbs can influence the body in a negative way? And is it better just to have a couple specific herbs or what's your thoughts on that? So that answer really sort of comes from what medicine tradition do you lean towards following? So I am a Western herbalist and in Western herbalism, we really go for very simple formulas. Most of the time, my formula would have between maybe three and five herbs in it. Um, And in that way, I'm making sure that that I'm getting really a therapeutic level of any one of those herbs um, in my dose. Now, in a tra- traditional Chinese medicine perspective, you, you might see 15 to 20 herbs in their formula, and they're very complex formulas. Um, now, to say one is better than the other, I, I can't necessarily say that. I mean, as a Western herbalist, like I said, I always go for those simple formulas. I, that's what I tend to like better. But there's validity in traditional Chinese medicine and how they formulate. Um, I especially like simple formulas, though, when you're first starting out using herbs, because if you have some kind of a negative reaction to something and you have a formula with 15 or 20 things in there, it's going to be really difficult to pinpoint what you reacted to. It's also going to be hard to pinpoint what might have worked. Right. Right. So that's why I really love the very simple things. And I think as a society, we think complicated is better. Um, but in, in the theory of herbalism and in the art of herbalism, sometimes less is more. Uh, now we, it's, it is very rare that I will give one single herb because most herbs do work better in conjunction with other herbs that synergize well with them. Um, and so we look at these flavors and like sour and bitter, how they go together. Those are synergistic flavors. Um, but there are some times where an herb might be um, antagonistic and you wouldn't want that in your formula. Like we would never look at pungent herbs, which are very hot, right? Hot and spicy. I would never give someone a formula that is all hot and spicy herbs, especially if they have a hot constitution. If I do that, they're going to hate me. <laughs> so, you know, I always want to balance that formula with something in there that's cooling if most of the, those herbs are warming. So just like how the body has to work to remain in balance, our formulas that we give should be balanced as well. Like our meals should be balanced. So, you know, that that idea of balance, yin and yang, um, f- is really running through everything that we do in a holistic perspective. And since you mentioned uh, constitution, can you talk about that a little bit too? Sure. Yeah. So I really love um, what what people will find when they when they look come to any of my classes. Is I take a very eclectic approach, and so I use little bits of lots of different medicine theories in the way that I approach herbalism. So you know, this five flavors theory is a lot from traditional Chinese medicine and Ayurveda. I I look at energetics, which are hot, cold, warm, dry. That's very Chinese medicine. I have a lot of Western theory. When I look at constitutions of people, I tend towards the Ayurvedic doshas. Um, Ayurveda has three main doshas, vata, pitta, and kapha, and how they describe 
um, constitutions of individuals. And so it might describe them in terms of, you know, like body shape, um, but also personality and how you respond to things in your world, um, how you show up in the world, uh, the things that you like, the things that you dislike. Like I am a very, I am 100% Pitta. Okay, so Pitta is a very hot constitution. We're fiery, um, hence my red hair. And, you know, I talk loud and I, I talk forceful and I'm very passionate and everything about me is like intense and on fire. That's very Pitta. Now, when I'm out of balance, when I'm too Pitta, I'm very short tempered. I will fly off the handle at the smallest things and my digestion gets out of whack. And so that, you know, then I know, okay, I have to do some things to cool myself down. I might need more things like, you know, watery vegetables, cucumbers, maybe, maybe melons, those, those very cooling foods in order to bring me back in balance if I've been doing too much hot and spicy, which I tend towards. I love hot and spicy, um, but it doesn't necessarily love me all the time. Now I have a daughter who's Vata. Now, Vata constitution is typically very um, tall and thin and wiry, um, very airy. Uh, they tend to do better with a diet that is more vegetarian and less animal protein. Um, not to say, though, that they have to be vegetarian or vegan all the time. Uh, my daughter feels better when she eats about 80% vegetarian and gets just a little bit of, of meat proteins here and there. Um, she has, she'll get bursts of energy and then burn out and need to sleep, right? So that a Vata person, you know, they can get that energy up, but it doesn't last long where somebody like me, who's Pitta, my energy goes for a really long time. Uh, your third constitution is Kapha. And kapha is typically a more sturdy build of a person, sometimes more round in build. And we describe this person as somewhat of a couch potato. These are people that are typically very happy-go-lucky, um, but they're really content to just be. And not that they're not motivated, but it takes them a lot to get motivated. Um, once they're up and going, they're good. It's just that initial push to get going. Um, but these people are those ones that we're typically drawn to. They have a, a wonderful laugh and a wonderful smile and that round face. And we think of them as jolly. Um, and so we get clues in looking at these constitutions and how they show up in the world as to what their imbalances might be. So a kapha person will be leaning more towards maybe having excess weight because they don't get up and moving as often as somebody who maybe is pitta or vata. And so um, when I'm looking at what flavors might be best for this person, I take into account who, who are they? Um, wh how, what relationships do they have in their life? What is their Ayurvedic constitution? And then I look at what is out of, out of balance and how can I use these herbal flavors to help bring them back into balance? So now that we know about the flavors, we know about the constitutions, and you also mentioned um, different, there's other components to herbs, such as hot and cold as well that you take a look at. Is there a place 
for herbs for chronic conditions such as IBD, different autoimmunity or anything along those lines? Absolutely. And that's really what I focus my clinical practice on. I concentrate mostly in complicated chronic illness and autoimmune conditions. And and that has really come from the fact that I I am a person with autoimmune conditions. So um, in learning to manage my own condition, that's really where I ended up focusing in in my practice. And the large majority of people these days um, have some kind of a chronic issue, whether it's chronic digestive issues, autoimmune, chronic pain. There's something happening that they've been dealing with for a long time. And herbs really do have a great way of being able to come in, balance the systems of the body, uh, reduce symptoms, but also we have that opportunity to get to the root cause of their health challenge as opposed to just fixing a symptom. Now, in the beginning, I might work to just fix a symptom to give somebody some relief right away. But we really do need to dig in to where did that come from? And a lot of times, I'm going to go on a limb and say 95% of the time, it comes from the food that we eat and the way we digest it. And so someone will come to me with chronic pain. And and in the beginning, they might get a little frustrated because I want to talk about their diet. Or they'll come to me with allergies and I'm going to talk about their diet. And, And we spend a lot of time talking about what foods they eat and trying to discover what they may be intolerant to or what they might be eating that is really just aggravating their particular constitution. And... So when we fix digestion, I find that, you know, 75 to 80% of what bothers them goes away. And then we can come in with herbs to help handle what's left. Um, I feel like if I just throw herbs at someone without really working on their diet and their lifestyle, I'm just putting a Band-Aid on a hemorrhage. And we're really not going to get anywhere. And so the people who come to me really have to be ready to dig in to find the root cause and make lifestyle changes. Yeah, and that's the tough part. And we've talked about that a lot on this podcast is um, the lifestyle changes is one of the most difficult things for people to make. Uh, But a lot of times the guests that I have uh, on the show the people that are coming to them have already gone through all these other options and it didn't work. So they're getting to that point where they know, okay, something has to change and it's probably in my lifestyle. I just need that guidance to get me there. And then, like you said, you can use herbs or some other sources that help to supplement the process, but that can't be your magic pill. You have to do the lifestyle stuff first. Absolutely. Yeah. And I and I look at that a lot when people come to me with stress related issues. And I mentioned earlier a category of herbs um, called adaptogens that help our bodies to respond to and recover from stress. And so I'll get, you know, those really type A, very driven, high achieving clients, which I was one of, and I believe, which is why I have a thyroid condition at this point. Um and, and they'll come to me and they'll say, I need something so that I can keep going at the rate I need to go at. 
And I go, okay, well, let's take a look at why we're experiencing these health issues, right? I mean, this, this need to always be pushing ourselves to the brink of exhaustion is what is leading to breakdown of our bodies. And if I'm just going to give someone an herb to help them do that better, I'm going to make them even more sick. So before I give an herb that helps their body recover from stress, I have to really have conversation with them on how willing are you to reduce some stress in your life? You know, the big thing I've been working on over the last couple of years is um, my con my theory of do less, but do it really well. You know, for a long time, I thought I had to do everything and I had to have a hundred things going at one time. And now I'm like, no, I, I don't want to be that person anymore. I don't want to be stressed out like that. I don't want to live my life on this hamster wheel, feeling like everything every day is an emergency. And so I've been really consciously doing less, but the things that I choose to do, I put my energy into and I do them well. And it really makes a huge difference. It really does. And like you said, so many people now they're working 40 plus hours a week and then they go home and they have, you know, a family to take care of. They have kids to run to every single sporting event you could ever think of. Their lives are just hectic and they're trying to do it all. And it, yeah, it does just wear you down. It wears down the whole system. You can't right. do that forever. Something eventually will break. That's right. So you mentioned earlier that when you're recommending herbs, usually you don't just recommend uh, one at a time. So can you talk about different preparation methods for herbs and what are some of the best ways that you've seen um, work the best for uh, client compliance and uh, being able to get it into people's systems? Right. Yeah. So my my favorite way to give herbs is in liquid preparations, liquid extracts. So that would either be in a tea form or in a tincture form, which is extracted using alcohol and water. And the reason I like liquids is because we don't have to digest them. You know, 80% of America has compromised digestion right now. And so I tend to go, okay, let's just not put that extra stress on digestion. And also, because they're liquid, we absorb them into the bloodstream very quickly. And so we get results. Sometimes, depending on the herb, we might get results within 15 to 20 minutes. So it's really fast when we use it as a liquid. Now, with that being said, somebody who's new to using herbs and who is not acclimated to flavors of herbs may not like that. And so there are times where I do have to give capsules because that's the only way I can get someone to take it. And so I'm going to do that because the reality is if they're not going to take it, it's not going to work. And so I have to really meet them where they're at. So I love, like I said, I love liquids. Um, I love tea, but I tend to give tincture more often because it's easier. They can do less as a dose than they can as a cup of tea. Um, I will do capsules. I like to make syrups of things at home so that I can flavor them up and make them taste better. But more than anything, the first thing I recommend for people is to start using herbs in their kitchen. Really like look at those herbs in your spice cabinet and realizing that every meal that we make can be medicine if we know how to use our herbs. Um, and the when we look back at like traditional cultures 
uh, traditional diets like 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 the Mediterranean diet or or any of those, and the way that they paired their spices in different foods really gives us a clue as to why it, why they do that. So something like um, Eastern diets that use a lot of turmeric. So we've all heard about turmeric lately and how anti-inflammatory it is. And so a lot of people are going out and they're just taking a ton of turmeric capsules for its anti-inflammatory effects. Well, what we know from a lot of research is that turmeric doesn't make it through the digestive tract well by itself. We have to pair it with other things to help get it through the digestive tract so that we can experience its anti-inflammatory effects. And so when we look at things like curry, there's turmeric in, in your curries. We see that pairing turmeric with some type of a fat, like the coconut milk, helps to pull that through the digestive tract. There's a reason that these cultures paired their foods the way that they did. And so I encourage people to, to start, you know, getting cookbooks and looking at how these foods were prepared and study the herbs that are just in your kitchen. That's the simplest way you can start. You know, start learning about thyme and sage and oregano and rosemary and garlic and onions. You can really do anything you need to do for your health with the herbs in your kitchen cabinet. So that's the way that I mostly like to do things is, is get them cooking first. And then we start to look at, okay, do we need tinctures? Do we need a tea? Do we need capsules to supplement what we have going on in the kitchen? Yeah, so many people forget that the herbs in their spice cabinet actually have medicinal properties. It's not just right. there for flavors. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's great that we have these powerful herbs already in our kitchen that we can use anytime we want. Um, so when you're doing a tincture um, or even capsules, are you making the tinctures or capsules yourself or are you um, using pre-made uh, versions already? Well, to make my life easier, most of the time I use pre-made products. Mm -hmm. um, I also am a director for a product manufacturer. So I mostly will use what we what we make at the company that I work for. Um, but there are some things that maybe they don't carry that I need. And so I then will make it myself. And so there's always something some concoction going in my kitchen at any given time. Um, and so I'll make, you know, tinctures at home, um, I typically won't make my own capsules. It's just a whole lot of mess. I'd rather just purchase those, <laughs> but it can be done. Um, but another method that I like to use for delivering medicine is suppositories. This was a really like old tradition um, that is coming back. And it's a great way to deliver medicine as a rectal or a vaginal suppository for different things. So I like it, especially like when one of my kids gets sick and maybe they're vomiting a lot and I can't get medicine down them orally, I can make an herbal suppository um, that they can use rectally and that will help to fight their infection, stop their nausea, you know, whatever I'm trying to deliver orally, I could do rectally. So I like that too. That's kind of fun. Um, not everybody thinks suppositories is fun. I know, but I think it's kind of fun. <laughs> so. And then, um, 
Does sourcing of herbs matter? Like, does it matter um, when the herbs are harvested and who's harvesting them and where you're getting them? I, yes, it does matter. Um, so when I'm purchase, if I'm not harvesting myself, if I'm purchasing from a distributor, then I want to make sure that I know where those herbs are coming from and whether they were cultivated organically, like on a farm, or whether they were wild crafted, meaning that they were harvested from the wild. And if they're harvested from the wild, I really want to know what processes they have in place to make sure that the person harvesting that is doing that ethically because I want to make sure that that plant that I'm getting has not been harvested in a way that's going to wipe out a species or endanger any of the other plants in the ecosystem where that came from. I also want to know that it was harvested in the right time of year. So um, some kind of basic rules to follow in terms of when you would harvest something is depending on what part of the plant that you need. So if you need a flower, then that's typically harvested in the spring or summer, right before that flower fully opens. That's when the energy of that plant is mostly in that flower. It's giving all of its energy to make that bloom happen. And so when we need flower medicine, we want it at that time when, when there's a lot of energetic activity in that flower. Um, once that flower fully opens, the energy starts to go back down to the root of the plant. So we think of um, flowers as being summer. If we're wanting the leaf of the plant, we typically want that before the flower happens. So the plant is putting a lot of energy into making its leaf and into growing. And so that's when it, the chemicals are most active in the leaves. Um, but we can harvest leaf most of the time of the year if we have to. Um, but root is typically fall. So after the flower has happened, then the plant has gone to seed. Now all of the energy of that plant is coming back down into the root system. And it's going to go dormant over the winter, right? So before it does that, as that's coming back down into the root, that's when we would want to harvest roots. Um, now, going back to kind of a sustainability thing, I if I harvest things, I typically will harvest leaves and flowers or bark, um, you know, from a tree or whatever. I don't do too much root harvesting only because I just have a hard time knowing that I have to dig up an entire plant um, and take that out of its ecosystem. And that's, that's just not something I choose to do. So I will purchase that from a distributor or something. I mean, I know the same thing happens, right? Somebody's digging it up. I know that, but it's not me. Um, so there's just some things to think about. And it's like how we choose, you know, sourcing our food, right? Like whether we choose, um, you know, wild game meat over factory farmed meat, you know, it's just different ways of thinking about it. But um, yeah, harvesting is, is fun uh, and it's interesting, but there is a lot to think about when we're choosing when do we pick something or harvest something and, and how do we do that properly. So I have one more question for you. Uh, are, is there any last things you want to talk about when it comes down to the flavor of herbs and herbalism in general? Sure. Yeah. So I really just want to encourage people to get back to our roots, right? Really look at the traditions that 
we've had in many cultures and how we can use those traditions today in this modern world uh, to really bring ourselves and our world back in balance and start learning, you know, pick up some books, listen to podcasts like this, you know, um, watch videos and webinars, take some classes. This is really um, an opportunity to take your power back and become that healer for yourself and in your own family um, through your food, through your medicine, through your relationships with yourself and with others around you and with the natural world. So um, I just really encourage people to, to start to embrace those traditions again. Such great advice. Thank you. And then my final question question is, do you have a morning routine that you tend to follow that helps to just prepare you for the day and to keep you as healthy as possible? Yep. I get up in the morning and I spend some time um, just sitting in meditation and I have some plant ally cards that I use. I might do a reading for myself, but I have about an hour in the morning of quiet meditative reflection time. I might do a little bit of yoga or some stretching. I don't do the same routine necessarily every day, but I give myself that particular hour to just kind of get centered and grounded for my day. And the other thing that I do is I make my bed. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like if my bed is made, all is right in the world and I am ready to like tackle anything. That's awesome. I also love a freshly made bed. It's it's one of the most wonderful feelings when you climb in at night. That's right. Awesome. Well, people can find uh, more information about herbs on your podcast, which is the Herbal Wisdom Podcast. And um, people can also learn more about you and your offerings at herbalwisdominstitute.com. Can you talk a little bit about the herbalist program that you have available? Absolutely. I would love to. That's a nine month, one weekend a month herbalist course. And during that course, uh, the students learn about a little bit about botany and plant identification. So if they want to begin to find plants locally, they have a way to do that. Um, They learn about eco herbalism. So studying um, plant regions and biodiversity and making sure that we can recognize healthy ecosystems of plants, Um, wild edible plants, plant spirit medicine, but then a huge part of it is clinical application of herbs. So we go through anatomy and physiology, pathology of the different body systems and the herbal applications that can be used in each one of those body systems. And then they also learn how how to do a clinical assessment. Um, So that way, if they want to work with clients, they know how to do that intake, as well as how to formulate um, remedies and how to build protocols based on what they found in their intake. And is that all in person, online, a mix of both? This, This particular course is all in person. And so it meets the one weekend a month, Saturday and Sunday in Arizona. Um, But then I do have a video course on my website, which is called Herbal Medicine Basics. That's a great way to get started. And that's a six video course with all of the support materials, handouts, PowerPoints, everything that someone would need. And we go through 
uh, a few body systems, and we talk about the most common things people experience at home in those body systems. So let's say digestion or or sleep issues or anxiety. And then um, I give herbal therapeutics for each one of those body systems. Um, really easy, simple things they can do on their own. Awesome. It all sounds like really good stuff. So if people want to learn more, go to herbalwisdominstitute.com. Thank you, Chris, so much for coming on. I appreciate it. I love talking with other herbalists and uh, you just brought so much value. I love it. Thank you so much. I really appreciated you having me here. As you can see, Chris does a great job at breaking down herbs into bite-sized chunks so that it is easier for us to understand how to actually use them. That way we don't have to try to memorize every single action that every single herb and plant in this world uh, can do because for the majority of us, we will never be able to remember all of that. So thank you again, Chris, for coming on and sharing all the wisdom based off of the flavors of herbal medicine. And if you liked this episode, then please go to summitforwellness.com slash iTunes to leave us a quick rating and review and let us know that you enjoyed listening to this episode. Next time, we are bringing back on one of our top podcast guests from 2018, Cynthia Thurlow. And this time, she is going to be talking about intermittent fasting and what that can do for your body and how to do it properly so that uh, you can actually succeed with doing intermittent fasting. So here is just a brief clip from that episode. We are joined once again with Cynthia Thurlow. And Cynthia, what is one unique thing about you that most people don't know? <laughs> you know, I thought about this question. I might as well do the shock value. So I, unbeknownst to me, when I was in college, um, my sorority sisters convinced me to go work at a particular restaurant, which I didn't know what it was. This is how naive I was. So I was a Hooters waitress for about six months my junior year in college, which is about the antithesis of what people would ever expect of me. But I think it's a definitely a good, like a good shocker goes to show people. I'm not, I'm not as conservative as people think I am. <laughs> and you made it six months working there. That's pretty good. Well, I made such ridiculous money. I mean, it was, mm. it was hard to kind of, you know, I remember saying to my parents, I'm like, I wouldn't ever want you to come there to see me doing that, but I make ridiculous money. I mean, it's just, you know, something you do when you're 19 or 20 years old. And then later on you can laugh about it. Yep, that's that's a great job when you're in college. It definitely helps to uh, pay the bills. Some, yep, pay the bills. So in our episode together, what will we be learning about? We are going to be, oh, there's a whole bunch of things. Uh, we'll talk about intermittent fasting, which is one of my favorite topics. We also kind of touched on you know, my recent health journey and um, some exciting highlights over the last six months since we last chatted. And then what are your favorite foods or nutrients that you think everyone should get more of in their diet? Ooh, favorite foods. Okay, so avocado is definitely a favorite, you know, one of my favorite healthy fats. Um, I would say, you know, think about walnuts. Walnuts kind of look like our brains. So another healthy fat, um, you can have walnut butters or just eat them by themselves. And my favorite pre-made snack that I enjoy indulging in on occasion is maca dusted um, walnuts, which are pretty phenomenal. Um, they're made by a company called Moon Juice, uh, and you can get them online. And then lastly, I would say, you know, a, a kind of you're going to notice this theme. The other thing that I really think everyone should consume are like cruciferous vegetables. So I love cauliflower, 
love kale, love um, broccoli, and you know that helps us package up extra estrogen. And so good for men and women. Um, I would say those are probably like my top three. And then what are your top three health tips for anyone who wants to improve their overall wellness? Hmm. Okay. First and foremost, you got to sleep, high quality sleep, seven, eight hours a night without question. Um, as I talked about in the podcast, um, sleep quality is crucial for you know losing slash maintaining weight as well as a bunch of other physiologic um, processes. Secondly, you got to move your body every day. I don't care what it is. Um, walk with your dogs, get outside with your kids. Uh, we, we are designed to move our bodies. So sleep, move, and then eat. Um, I like I think you should fast. I think everyone should try fasting, even if you do it a couple days a week. Uh, those are like the three things that I think are really crucial and pivotal, you know, even for my own health and, um, my husband, I now have him doing intermittent fasting as well. So in our house, we're, we're a fasting household, at least for the adults. Yep. All three of those are great, great tips. I love each and every single one of them, especially sleep, because that seems to be one of the first things people decide to give up, even though sleep is so wonderful. So we definitely have a great episode together and we will share it with everyone next time. Awesome. We always enjoy having Cynthia on the show, so it'll be a super fun episode for you to listen to. So keep on climbing to the peak of your health and we will see you next time.